There it is. Welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide here. We're going to bring you another episode of the Burger No BSBC series. I think we're up to part seven now. We got Brian and Emil on the phone. And this one's going to be uh, probably going to a two-parter, but we're going to start talking some reloading for long-range shooting, which is a, a pretty popular topic. Um, I know we've done a bunch of discussions with people about you know, factory ammo or reloads, and a lot of people want to go in the direction of reloads. Um, that's usually the goal for a, a lot of the precision rifle guys is they start off factory and then they move into the reloading world. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Brian and Emil. Great to have you guys on again. Yeah, thanks, Frank. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you, Frank. Everybody doing well? Uh, no issues, no drama, so we're all good? Yep, for the uh, moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. I I might uh, I might drive down to Seattle and see if I can run a roadblock or two immediately following the podcast. <laughs> nice. I'll let you know. <laughs> you get an MRAP. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't bring your own vehicle. No, no, no personal vehicles in in, in downtown. I, I, I do have the perfect sleeper vehicle, though. I do have my wife has a powder blue Subaru Outback. So it's I can camouflage pretty well up here. Yes, yes. The, the, uh, we I actually have the out on uh, an outback, but a cross trek in the driveway as well. It's like the perfect when you're in that area where it can go either way. The Subaru is is the best way to camouflage yourself. Exactly. exactly. So, um. So let's jump into this with uh, with reloading. I mean, burger, and we're talking components and things like that through the bullets. And, and then Lapua on that side with the brass and everything, those are, are some of the most sought-after components that someone uh, would go down that road to chase. It, it's always like, I don't want to use, you know, this piece of brass or this bullet. They want to they mold that cartridge into their sort of like, you know, most desired load they can find. And, and usually that is a, a Burger-Lapua combination so uh, let, let's kind of get into that and, and where you guys stand on reloading for long range. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll kick it off. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we make, we make, we make uh, factory loaded ammunition. Um, you know, we think that our factory loaded ammunition is quite good. And for a beginning shooter uh, or somebody doesn't have, just doesn't have the time, Factory loaded ammo is a great idea, especially ours, because it's loaded in a Lapua case. So once a person buys a new rifle and they're not sure they want to hand load, they buy some of our factory ammo. Once they fire it, they have a once fired piece of brass for their rifle and with a Lapua case. And that's a premium component. It's expensive, uh, but you kind of get a lot of value for, for, your, for your dollar when you're buying ammunition. Um, but I thought that maybe we would uh, – I know that I have a perspective uh, and Brian has a perspective. Brian loads a lot of ammunition, and he's he's been involved in a couple of government projects and programs to determine what's the best way to load really, really accurate ammunition in, the, in a, quote, industrial kind of setting. So you learn a lot of stuff that maybe a hand loader wouldn't learn. So getting Brian's uh, feedback on this is going to be really interesting. But I thought maybe we would break it down. First thing that anyone's going to do is start out with is a, is a cartridge case. So what do you do to a cartridge case 
that matters and what, what shouldn't you do or what maybe is overkill or what doesn't matter. Um, so like if we start off with, say you buy brand new brass, brand new cartridge cases, you know, otherwise known as virgin brass. Um, if I have, if I have a virgin cartridge case, I have to make sure, even if it's a Lapua case, I always want to make sure that it is, they're all the same, uh, sort of dimensions. So, uh, I will always take a, I always take a, a cartridge case and I'll run it through a full length sizing die before I, before I shoot it at all, before I load it, even if it's, if it's never been processed before. And I'll, I'll run it through the set, their full length sizing die to the same dimensions as, uh, I've set up my cases for, uh, for reloading. And that just makes sure that if I have to touch the shoulder or any of those cases and also, I'm uniforming the necks at the same time to make sure the necks are all at the same dimension. Um, uh, and then once I do that, I want to uh, make sure that I'm treating the neck in a way that it, it allows for the bullet to leave the case without being damaged or scratched at all. So I'll, tr I'll, I'll chamfer it with, uh, with an inside neck chamfering tool and, uh, and then outside chamfer. And then I'll go to the to the primary operation. But Brian, in your in your experiments and your testing, uh, have you found you had to do what worked and what you did or didn't have to do to brand new cases to get them to perform? Um, yeah, brand new cases. It's really, I mean, everything in hand loading. I'll just start with a broad perspective. It depends. Okay, it depends is the answer to almost every question when you're talking about what to do with. Uh, hand loading or reloading and um, on the on the question of new brass for hand loads uh, what I do to it depends on how it shows up um, so if I if I have you know premium piece of brass like you know I get Lapua new brass and I get it and the the mouths are really round and you know the case necks are really round and the case mouths have a nice camper on them which they often do and you know, there's, there's, there's literally, there's no dents in it or anything. Um, you know, on inspection, if the brass is in good shape, it didn't get damaged in shipping or, or at the factory and it was made well, I've literally done nothing to brass like that because it doesn't need anything. Um, the ammo that I loaded for the 2017 world championships that I shot in the individuals, um, in Canada was made on such brass on new Lapua brass. And I literally did nothing to it. I just seated a primer um, put in a weighed powder charge, seated a bullet, and that's the ammo that I finished third place in the world championship tournament with. And I don't feel like a lack of brass prep held me back at all. Um, now that's on, that's on the, the best side of things. Now, if you get, you know, other brand, I won't call it other brands, but if you get less expensive brass, that's made in more of a high volume, less expensive, there's always that spectrum, right? Um, you can get brass that shows up very, you know, with a lot of damage. You can get mouths that are mangled and dented and out of round that in order to even get a bullet started seating in it, you would have to mandrel it. And then the case mouths are often really boogered up and not camfered. And in that case, you would have to camfer or trim and then camfer the case mouths. Um, just doing a lot of work to bring that damaged brass up to par. Um, so it, it really depends. There, I would not say that I have there's not a process that I do to everything, no matter what, um, when it comes to brass, everything that I do to brass really depends on the condition of that brass when I get it. 
No, that makes per. I, I'm I'm a big and I have a, a kind of a go back to a, a anecdotal story with brass that way. We had a student that brought uh, a, re- a reload. It was kind of like reloaded ammo, but he had gotten virgin brass, and he didn't inspect it. He didn't do anything, and he just thought, well, this is new brass. I'm just going to put my powder in and seed it. And when he came to the class and I saw all, every bullet was a different size, you know, like you're, you're just looking at his, his plastic case there, and it's like, whoa, wait a minute. All that looks different, and I do that fundamental eval in the beginning, and it was like, okay, I'm watching this guy and he's having a hard time chambering some of them. He's having a hard time extracting some of them. And I said to uh, my partner, Mark, I'm like, dude, this guy's gun's going to blow up in eight rounds. And, or actually I said 10 and it blew up in eight because he didn't do any prep ahead of time. And, and, and I, I kind of think that uh, what Amos said of full sizing it and making sure your dimensions are good and inspecting it like Brian's talking about making it. Cause there, there are cases where, the bags get beat up in shipment. Uh, sometimes the brass comes in a bag that's just, you know, a plastic bag. And, and the shippers, you know, can get a little little hard with it. So for sure inspect that brass before you start moving forward. Um, when I was at the Army Marksmanship Unit, you know, all of the brass for anything that the guy shot, you know, from 223 to 308 to 7 Arsom to the wind mag to all the stuff they shoot down there, uh, all that brass is prepped on a Dillon uh, like 1050. So they just have a they have a they have a sizing guy set up, you know, with a custom a custom carbon mandrel um, that uh, for the for the for the inside uh, neck diameter that they want to set up for their desired case uh, neck tension, and all the all the brass is run on a progressive through that charging station now. That's, you know, I know lots of guys out there have progressive presses um, and some dope, but it is a very it's a very effective and fast way. And it does a good job. Um, and you just have to make sure that you are you're treating the brass in a way like using like a lubricant um, before you throw it in a in any kind of a dye and that you have a plan. Uh, you know, the Hornady one shot is a good spray lubricant that can dry. You don't really have to do much to it after it dries. But they use that sort of process to just prep mass prep cases before the loading operation. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's important uh, to make sure we start from that, that basics and, and inspect and prep. So, uh, yeah, definitely good stuff to get people on the right foot. So now now that's that's with a brand new case. Now, you know, what do we do with a fired case? You know, and that that's probably, you know, that's the sticky wicket you know, as, as the, as the Brits want to say, you know, so what do you do? You have a case, you buy some factory ammunition and you shoot it. And now you have a, you have a fired case with a spent primer in it that was shot out of your rifle. So what do you do from there? What's the, you know, what are some of the things that you do uh, that you have to do? So um, Brian on fired brass, do you, do you have a process? I know that yours is probably fairly streamlined of how you prep cases and reload them. Yep. So a uh, piece of fired brass is a whole different story. You have uh, different different things that are important. So obviously, if you fired a piece of brass in your chamber, um, you know, the case mouth is round. You know, you don't have any dents in it. A lot of those problems that you had with new brass aren't, you know, they, they get ironed out by the pressure of being fired. And so, but you have new problems now, right? You've got a piece, uh, piece of brass that's expanded and won't hold a bullet. So you need to resize it. Now, there's all 
there's all kinds of ways to go about resizing from full length resizing to doing minimal sizing. And the, the big idea here is that guys that are looking for precision don't want to overly resize their brass down too small because the, the thinking is that it fits too loose in the chamber and it may not be concentric when the bullet starts to move. Um, also, excessive resizing uh, works the brass more on each firing and can make the brass not last as long. So the, those are the that's sort of the reasoning behind the spectrum of you know how much you want to size the brass. Um, now, if you you know uh, the precision guys listening were like, well, obviously we want to go towards that minimal sizing if that's better for precision. But it's important to mention the uh, the side effect or the collateral effects that you get. Uh, if you're going for very minimal sizing, just like you know maybe bumping the shoulder or just, you know, only sizing the neck without touching the shoulder. So you get that really tight fit. There's a very fine line between a piece of brass. that's a very nice fit in the chamber uh, and one that just doesn't fit, or, you know, you've got to really wrench the bolt closed. And, you know, I used to be one of those precision guys that try to do everything right on the edge and make it, make everything just barely fit perfectly together. You know, until I got in some wrestling matches with my rifle on a firing line, because things were just on the, too big side to fit well. And I found that the distraction of dealing with that stuff and, you know, the questionable shots that you get is just not worth it. And so, you know, probably five, five or six, seven years ago, I went to um, simply full length sizing all brass. Um, and so that it functions easily, it goes in and out of the gun easily, uh, functions without issue. And um, I found that I probably have gained more points in competitions with ammo loaded on full length sized brass than by trying to squeeze out anything. If there's anything to be squeezed, you know, it's uh, I haven't really seen any tests to show that full length sized brass is any less precise than brass that's sized minimally. Um, so that's kind of my thoughts on sizing. Um, cleaning is another thing that you get into with fired brass. And I've seen, I, I've actually been through all extremes of that, you know, the ultrasonic cleaning or the corn cob tumbling. And, you know, for the longest time, I didn't do anything to clean my brass. It, it looked like shit, but it, I, you know, I felt I wasn't introducing any variables into the process by trying to clean it and having it go a little different each time. Um, and then, you know, there's annealing, like if you're if you're hardening your brass each time through, you know, firing, expanding and then uh, resizing at some point, you're going to want to anneal the brass to make it last longer or it starts to split. Um, and then trimming also, you know, as you resize and fire the brass, it, it gets longer and you have to trim it to length in order to fit in your chamber. Uh, but again, these are all things that I do as necessary. There's there's nothing that I do every single time without without thought, you know, if I, if I have a bucket of fired brass or box of fired brass, I'm always looking at it to assess what it needs. You know, does it need clean for what it's being used for? Does it need full length sized or a different kind? So my approach is very application based. You know, if, it, if it's really important, then I might do a few more extra steps, but there's a lot of times when it just isn't that important and we only do what's necessary to make it work. Nice, nice. And I think that's pretty accepted to do the full length sizing uh, now as a routine. And and then I, you know, with the brass, I've seen it both ways. I, I think sometimes because cleaning it, it's kind of a, a hands free kind of deal other than when you get it out to make sure you don't have something stuck in a primer pocket or a fire, you know, the hole there. But it, it, it does. I, I've done it where I didn't clean the brass and, and saw good results. And then, you know, you look at it and go, well, it looks good. 
when it's cleaned up and it's it's starting you in a fresh place. So I, I guess I've seen it done both ways and haven't seen a, a big, huge pro and con either way. I, I think it's a personal preference thing, like you exactly what you're saying. And, you know, the uh, and kind of the order that you kind of do these things in uh, means a lot. You know, the and going back to full length sizing, you know, most of us that shoot this game or, you know, these type, we're pretty much all shooting fairly high pressure loads. You know, we're not shooting middle of the pack or sandy pressure. Most people, you know, the, the sport that I shoot the most, you know, the NRA long range prone, you know, I'm shooting a 155 grain bullet at over 3000 feet per second. So I'm at the upper edge of, you know, near max pressure. And a lot of times you'll find that uh, some sizing dies don't size all the way down to the base. So you're, you're doing a good job of pushing the shoulder back. And for me, I always like that shoulder to be at least 3000 back um, from the dimension of a fired case. Uh, I find that uh, with different lube applications, uh, it's really difficult to make, I don't care what kind of die you have. Um, it's pretty common for that, that headspace measurement or how much that shoulder is getting pushed back rather um, will fluctuate. So if you size a hundred pieces or a thousand pieces, they're not all going to be dead nuts. You're probably going to have a fluctuation of a thousandth to a thousandth and a half on that shoulder measurement. So you need to make sure that you're far enough back so that you're never approaching touching that case to the show, to the chamber, mainly for hard extraction on these high pressure loads. So Minimum three thousandths is kind of my benchmark. I like to load between three and four. If I set my sizing die up and I run a bunch of test cases through and I'm averaging between three and four thousandths back from a fire case, I'm happy. But I had to go to a small base sizing die for some of my applications because after three or four shots, the web starts expanding on your cartridge case. And a lot of a lot of full length dies don't all the way down in size, all the way down to the web. So You'll find quite a lot of guys shooting long range with high pressure loads do favor a full length sizing die that is also a small base die. Um, that does help. I mean, at the end of the day, if your ammunition is kind of loaded to, you know, around factory, you know, or regular zero on a headspace dimensions, that also gives you the added flexibility is if somebody else is shooting and they're having a problem with their ammo, you can give them ammo and it should function out of their rifle. I was just going to, that's great buying advice that small base dies, but I was just going to say that as sometimes I reload so limited, but sometimes I don't know where I'm going to put that ammo and what rifle. Cause I I'll switch rifles quite often just by the nature of the site. So that's a great thing is that I'm not loading specifically for that rifle where nothing else will fit or it won't fit anywhere else as I kind of want to make any reloads that I'm doing universal and that way there, if I do decide to put it into a different rifle, I'm not going to run into a problem with a with a bunch of reloaded ammo that won't fit in that rifle because it's only made for this one. So uh, great buying advice on the small base. And, and you know, the guys that the guys that do anneal, you know, they swear by it. Um, I don't have an annealer, uh, mainly because my wife won't let me buy one. But, <laughs> um, you know, but if there but if you are annealing. You want to anneal before you do anything else. So, you know, in your process of time, I think, I mean, maybe Brian has a different perspective on this, but, you know, in your, in your, in your brass prep, you probably want to anneal before you go through the full length sizing process and all that other stuff. Um, 
And, and, you know, uh, a friend of mine just bought one of these annealers, these AMPs, and there's a, there's a test, I guess you can do. It's a destructive test where it gives you a reading on the cartridge case to let you know what the setting is. And he tested Lapua 308 brass with ver- with virgin and one fired and three times fired and like seven times fired. And that number didn't change. Like, so that number that the AMP annealer figured out that how much it needs to heat treat, that number didn't change. And, you know, the Lapua cases are designed so that, you know, in average pressure, they're supposed to be good for 10 firings and maintain, you know, enough, uh, you know, enough flexibility, enough malleability, you know, the neck tension, not supposed to get work hardened to a point where they're not usable anymore. So, uh, you know, if a person really wanted to go down a rabbit hole and do testing, I would, I, you know, that'd be a good subject for a long-term test of, you know, looking at the metric. Because what you're really chasing with with annealing is neck tension, which can relate directly to standard deviations of velocity. You know, so uh, you know, annealing again, again, lots of people are doing it mainly because of the proliferation of some of these devices that are out there. Uh, but you know, be judicious in how you do it. And make sure that you you know that it you know just don't do it because all your friends are doing it like my mom used to say you know? <laughs> right <laughs> right <laughs> but, um, and then trimming and chamfering um, uh, you know I I have a uh, I have one of these little world's finest trimmers um, that go into a you know a cordless drill and I actually have it chucked up in my little mini benchtop lathe and I just I run my brass through it every time after I shoot it. Um, sometimes it doesn't take any brass off. Sometimes it does. Uh, but you know, having, having the, the case to the desired trim length, um, you know, it's going to fire and you probably won't even notice a difference, uh, up until, you know, that case gets, starts getting really long. I mean, there's, there is a max length because at that point, the, the mouth of the cartridge case can impact the edge of your chamber. So you could actually inadvertently start crimping your bullet if you never trim your brass. Um, but I, I would imagine, I'm not sure how to test it, but I would imagine that having that consistent length every single time might help with neck tension and might lead to lower standard deviations. But, you know, if as long as you're spot checking, I think, in reality and in practice, as long as it's not getting you know, probably more than five, six thousandths over the uh, recommended trim length, I wouldn't imagine it would have a great deal of an effect. Brian, do you have any thoughts on trimming grass for length? Um, it's another one of those things we do as needed. Um, you know, if it's if we measure it and it's not at the uh, max length yet, then we don't trim it. Um, now, as far as trimming it every time, so, so the, oh, I'll back up a minute. There's there's a, there's things that we worry about as hand loaders that just we want to avoid because they sound bad or that we want to achieve because they sound good. But in the whole spectrum of things that we do or don't do, very few of those things are actually tested and proven out to actually matter. Um, and so what I'm about to say is in that category, this is something we have not got around to testing yet. Uh, but, you know, we have done a lot. This So. Whenever, if you're trimming and in particular um, inside neck deburring, okay, after a trimming or as part of a trimming operation, if your cutter is sharp, it will cut a very nice camphor on the inside of your case mouth and a bullet will seat in there 
uh, without being scratched or without being grabbed by a tiny bird. Now, if that, if your cutter tool is dull, then if you look carefully and closely at that camper that you're cutting on the inside of the case mouth, it's like a little barb, like on a fishing hook. And if you see the bullet into that, you can often scrape uh, strips of copper off of the bullet. And that little barb is acting to, to grip the bullet uh, because you smeared some of that material from the brass. And now that's affecting how uh, it's, it's gripping the bullet at that point. And that's one, you know, if you pull a bullet out of a case like that, you'll see where there's like nasty gouges and scratches in the bullet. And that I have measured as having an effect with the Doppler radar having a shot to shot BC variation if you damage the bullets. And I think that's one of the things that can damage the bullets is if you're trimming with a dull tool. So if that's something you're doing every time, just make sure that you're thinking about um, how many rounds you've used that tool for. And if it gets dull to replace it with a sharp one, because it may be a case where you end up inadvertently doing more damage than good. Um, now, if it's done right, if it's your tools are kept sharp and, you know, you're cutting, you're trimming every time, then you can, it can be done without causing damage. Um, but sometimes I know I, I've definitely seen it where dull tools or a bad inside neck camper can cause problems with bullets that you see, where if you were to just skip that step, let's say the, the case wasn't at max length and you didn't need to trim it. Well, if you just fired it, um, you know, it's already going to be smooth from the bullet and the fire coming out from firing the round. Um, and so you won't have that problem. It's only when you cut it fresh that you make the potential for that problem. Um, yep. That's so a really good point. That's yeah, that, really no, it's, and, 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 you know, just to put a little bit of a point on it for people to understand next, because what you're saying is sort of looking at that mouth of the neck is important. Is that it, when when guys look at the, the the chasing of the six millimeters that people are doing, whether it's the you know six by forty seven, the six GT now, the BRAs and Xs and the Dashers, a lot of them are chasing a specific neck. You know, they're trying to find this neck length in in in, in something around the neck that that really helps with them. And so yeah, I mean it's important to make sure that the the mouth of the case and that the the necks are in a good place because that's what's guiding the bullet. So absolutely, that's the uh, point. Know, a couple of years ago, uh, actually about fifteen years ago, I was I had a I had a sizing die for my three hundred eight um, that uh, I noticed that you know I was I, I took the die apart to, to to clean it or to change like one of the decapping stems, and I noticed there was all kinds of brass stuck to the carbide expander uh, ball that was in my sizing die, and I didn't even notice, but I was making scratches on the inside of my case neck because of those, because of the, the brass that had adhered to my carbide expander uh, ball. So I, I knocked out some of my bullets with a, uh, you know, the kinetic uh, bullet puller. And I was, by just knocking them out with my kinetic bullet puller, I could see the bullet jackets were scraped. I was like, holy crap. So you know, I took some emery uh, cloth or whatever, and I cleaned up that expander ball. And then I just I did some tests to make sure that I got some, I got the that that part of the operation to the point where I was not scratching the neck. So, again, you know, you can always pull a couple of bullets and see what your bullets look like. And if your process is flawed, you know, you might be able to tell that, you know, we don't all have radar like Brian does in his backyard. But uh, you know, it's, that's a good way of testing perhaps is like knock some out 
and see if your case prep is giving you clean bullets because that is important. I've seen some of the data Brian's referring to, and you'd be surprised how much you can compromise the you know the BC and the consistency of BC in flight. Nice, nice. Yeah, great tips there. Um, th- this will help people kind of shortcut the process a little bit, you know, because a lot of it is trial and error. They're picking up the pieces of information and getting it from you guys. It- it- it's going right to the source. I mean, I guess that's why everybody's considering this a college level master class, listening to you, you two guys uh, go over this information. So uh, great. So we, we got our so brass. I'll oh, go ahead, Brian. Uh, Emil. Sorry. I was, I was going to say, you know, there's a, there's another, you know, there's another uh, intermediate sort of process step where guys, I know a lot of F class guys do this where they're, they will, they'll full length size a case. And then, um, you know, they'll go to, I think Sinclair has them. There's a couple other companies that make, but they have a, you can select a carbide mandrel at a specific diameter. And, uh, you know, they make a die that is a universal mandrel die. So you can put all different kinds of mandrels in this die, you know, anything from 22 caliber all the way up to, you know, 30 something caliber. So what guys do is they figure out what their desired neck tension is. And uh, one way of doing that, you know, is by, you have to know the, the de- dimensions of your, of your chamber. Um, I just had a rifle built in 65284, and the neck of the rifle, of the chamber is 0.297. So, you know, for me, uh, I loaded up a couple of cases of with Lapua brass and the, uh, the, the outside dimension of the loaded case, of loaded round was about, two nine three five so i have about a three and a half thousandths of clearance between my case neck with a bullet in it and the chamber so guys guys will kind of they can dial in that uh, that dimension by you know full length sizing and then one additional step after you full length size is using a very straight reloading press or even an even a arbor type press and then, uh, or there's forcer coax, or what a lot of those guys favor, and sizing the neck to the exact dimension that you want as an as an auxiliary or an additional step. Um, so if guys are really trying to dial in neck tension, that intermediate step is a good way of doing it. And the dies aren't that the mandrels are actually more expensive than the die. I think the the universal die is like 30, 40 bucks, but each one of those mandrels is like almost fifty dollars. Because they're carbide steel and they're very precisely ground. Nice. Yep. I mean, Sinclair's got great tools for this kind of stuff. Um, it, when you want to get, um, you know, kind of customed out with with your reloading, they do have. Uh, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't know the name of the tool either, but um, beyond you know what you were saying, but uh, for sure, Sinclair's a, nice. a an awesome resource. And so I guess you know at this point we can kind of you know virtually we've got our case prepped. You know, it's it's gone through all the stages. So now we have to put a primer in it. Um, so priming can be. Uh, I I do believe that uh, different depths of primer seating can affect your uh, your velocity that you get out of the case. You know, you know, how how does a primer work? You know, you've the uh, primer has an anvil. It's kind of a you know, it's a it's a convex kind of inverted little pyramid that is pressed up against your uh your priming compound in the case so you have a flat side of the 
which is facing your facing your firing pin. And so when your firing pin impacts the flat side of that primer, it is compressing between this hard pyramid, this anvil, and the and the cup material, your firing pin. It's kind of like a, that's why it's called an anvil. And you compress that, uh, you know, that that chemical compound and it explodes. So you can imagine that if you're not getting the same exact consistent impact pressure, that striking force, you're not going to get the same force of explosion every time. And that could lead to the to the, a different a different sort of, uh, you know, dynamic of how much how the flash propagates how the through the flash hole. And ignites the prime the powder. Uh, you know, we know that having a weak firing pin spring or mainspring can cause inconsistent velocities as well. I mean, if you're having a bolt gun that is having performance problems, with the, one of the easiest things to do, especially if it's an older rifle, is change the firing pin uh, spring. Uh, I've seen lots of guys chase ammunition problems for months and not realize they had a weak uh, firing pin spring that needed changing. So how you prime is important. Um, you know, there's all kinds of tools out there that, that cost up to six, seven hundred dollars to put a primer in all the way to the, you know, the fifty dollar one you can buy at, you know, Sportsman's Warehouse. So, uh, Brian, in priming, uh, do you have a process or, or, or a way to check or how much crush or primer depth that you kind of you think works well? Um. So typically, I, what I try to do is seat the primer to the bottom of the pocket just so it's held in place, and there's no question about if and how much it moves when it's hit. Um, and that's my thinking on it. And we, we have done some limited tests where we tried seating like flush with the case head uh, versus um, clear to the bottom, like recessed below the case head towards touching the, the bottom of the primer pocket, and then even some that were crushed a little bit. And long story short, there we couldn't determine any genuine difference in those uh, in those seating methods. Uh, now, to again to consider this from a statistical point of view, there's lots of things that again we think should matter or think shouldn't matter. Um, and you know, the only way to know is to test it. The only way to know for sure is to test it. But the problem with the way that that most shooters go about testing is they they don't use a statistically significant sample. And what I mean is, you know, is we've all read on the internet where guys like, you know, did a, a five shot group of this primer and a five shot group of that primer and whatever one shot the best group or had the better SD or whatever metric he thinks it should be better by, um, one is better than the other. And so concludes that that's for all time the best way to do it. And, you know, maybe he's thorough and does a 10 shot group. Well, what we've found is it's a 10 shot group is not nearly enough shots to understand what a what a standard deviation is truly going to be in the long run um you know it's very common to, to have you know two back-to-back 10 shot groups of the exact same ammo out of the exact same gun and see an sd of five and an sd of 10 back to back with nothing being different and so that goes to show the, like the variability of sd that you can get in any given test and so when you're doing these tests to determine for example the you know, if there's a best way to see the primer, these things that are subtle take a lot of shots to determine, uh, especially if the benefit is small. Um, now, if there's a big benefit to something, you can sort that out in much fewer shots. Um, when it comes to primers, 
personally, I worry a lot less about how it's seated in terms of like where it is in the pocket as they do what type of primer it is. Um, you know, so sometimes you want a magnum primer, sometimes you just want a standard primer, um, sometimes a match primer, some, sometimes a standard primer that's just a little hotter. So what you're really trying to do is match the ignition characteristics of the, of the powder to what the primer is doing so that you have a good combination. You, you can't really consider anything in isolation. You know, all this stuff works together to produce uh, uh, consistency. And if you can, you know, a primer that works best for one powder may not be the best primer for a different powder. And so that's what I think mostly about when, it, when I think of primers is what's the best primer type for the powder that I'm working with. And then I just, you know, I seat it to the bottom of the pocket and we go. Nice. I, you know what? You guys hit on this. Uh, there was some questions I was going to ask about it, but you went into it without zero prompting. And I mean, this is super important. I mean, because, you know, yeah, Emil talking about like what's that firing pin penetration? What's the uh, how, how much protrusion does it have? And if it's down at the bottom, is that giving it a different impact versus if it's flush with the case? You know, then you're talking to, like Brian bringing up right there. You know, well, maybe I need a, a magnum primer to kind of get that a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit more consistent flash that's going to ignite that particular powder a little bit better than a, a match primer or a standard, uh, you know, type of primer. And, yeah, I mean, th there is a, a, a school of thought around primers and you guys just nailed it so darn well. Um, you know, there's there's nothing to say other than re-listen to that. Because where you guys just went on that primer discussion, I think is is everything. Um, you know, putting it all all the best practices together. Yeah, for me, uh, I I always I always make sure I also my my priming operation isn't damaging the primer. Um, I had a cheap uh, tool. I'm not going to say who made it. Um, you know, I just needed a priming tool. I moved out here to to the Seattle area. And all of my stuff was still in storage. And I'm like, man, I got to load some ammo to go shoot this match. So I just went down the road to like, you know, Cabela's or something. And I bought the thing that's on the shelf, you know, that costs like 35 bucks. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't shooting very well. I'm like, man, I guess I, I retired from the army and I suck all of a sudden. And I realized I looked at my at my my cartridge cases and the uh the little the little plunger that pushes up against the primer it wasn't uh it wasn't really it was supposed to be for large rifle but it was kind of in between large rifle size and small rifle size so i was putting like a half moon or a crescent kind of dent in my primers it was not contacting the primer flush so i was actually damaging each primer um as i was seeding them and uh, when I finally – I have a little hand priming tool. It's an, it's an older Sinclair model. And I primed them, and all of a sudden, my everything went back to normal. So, you know, just make sure speed kills when it comes to priming. You know, unless you have a, a, a device, a tool that's designed to prime at a high rate of speed, um, you know, that's purposefully designed for that, just be careful when you're priming. And obviously, it's like one of the most dangerous parts of reloading. Um, you know, uh, we had, we've had a couple of ceiling tiles, uh, get exploded down in Fort Benning during primer mishaps, you know, these ones that take tubes and, you know, primer gets down there sideways and the guy leans on it too hard and all of the primers in that tube explode and you got a little rocket ship and a hole in the sheetrock. Mm. Um, so, 
you know, priming is a pretty, is a, is a, we take it for granted, but it's one of those things where you never always want to point the primer, the case neck mouth away from you when you're priming and, and wear some safety glasses when you're priming because nice. you never know. <laughs> it's, it's truly, it's, it's the one part where you're literally handling something that can impact explode, you not, know? So not too long ago, there was one of the PRS guys, you know, cause they kind of, they, they like to, um, Talk about their last minute reloading. Oh, I got a match tomorrow and no ammo and I'm going to speed through it until the morning, you know. And there was recently right. there was a guy who blew a primer up on him and kind of had that blackened face a little bit. And, and everybody's kind of giggling. But exactly what you just said, because guys are waiting to the very last minute trying to go as fast as physically possible. And what screws up the priming process and, and there's a little bit of a bang in their in their reloading room. So that that is a huge safety tip. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, while we're still on the case, you know, before we put the powder in, which I think, and putting the powder in and, and developing the, the powder charge, I think that's probably, that's a real long discussion. And, um, but even before that, you know, case weight sorting, uh, I'd like to touch on that a little bit and get Brian's thoughts on it. Um, you know, a lot of people weigh cases, uh, in order to improve their performance you know, with the idea being, okay, if I'm weighing these cartridge cases and they all, I put, I have a scale and I have a bunch of cases and I put them all on the scale and they all weigh different weights. So that must mean that, you know, the interior dimension of the case is different for each case. I mean, I know the exterior dimensions that are going through my sizing die. So, that must mean that the interior dimension of the cases are is changing from case to case. So by weight sorting, you're now sorting for a volume of cases. And then the thinking being, well, if I do that, then that must mean that my volumes will be more consistent. And that must that would mean that my, you know, the 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 ignition is going to be more consistent and my velocity is going to be more consistent. So my opinion after seeing, you know, a wonderful, you know, I've been to the to the Lapua factory a few different times and talk to the engineers there. And uh, they do not recommend uh, weighing your cases and sorting uh, the cases that way for loading. And I'm sure if people listen to this, you're going to get a lot of questions on this, Frank. Um, but uh, my experience and what I've seen and what I've talked to the engineers, most case weight variation is actually caused by the different dimensions in the rim and the groove. So rim thickness differences and the dimensions of the groove, little tiny, you know, thousandth or half a thousandth, because that is actually turned uh, as a, that's like a turning operation at the cartridge case factory. So those small dimension changes in the rim and the groove account for most of your weight difference. So if you're sorting for weight, you may not be sorting the right thing. So, Brian, do you have any thoughts on weight sorting brass for performance? Uh, nothing in addition, Abel. That's a, that's exactly how I understand it. And, um, of course, I've done it. I've, you know, at one point uh, before I comp fully understood everything you just explained, I, I did it and tried it. And I was not able to see an advantage in weight sorting brass. So it's something I stopped doing. And yeah, now I understand why. Right, we mentioned it in the last podcast, I think it was, or one, two back, that uh, there's the ELR one, one of them, that about the weight sorting of the cases, that other than, to, or bullets is actually, I think is where we went, 
where people were sorting the bullets as well. And you guys kind of went into the, you know, other than looking for that one odd one that might fall into the box that doesn't belong, that chasing that sort is, is, is kind of a lesson in frustration. Yeah. And, you know, now, Brian, have you, have you done very much with uh, like using custom dies uh, for any of your applications, shooting applications. So we say a custom die, you know, that if you really want to dial in your rifle, you know, some, what a lot of Pinterest guys and some of the F class guys, they'll take a couple of fired cases out of their chamber and they'll send them to like Al Warner does this. I know where you can send Alan, uh, you know, some fired cases and he'll make you a custom sizing die for your rifle and your chamber. Um, so there's, there's positive. The positive thing is you've got the perfect die set up for your rifle, but the thing is you probably can't use that for some, for a different chamber and a different rifle. Um, but, uh, Brian, do you have any experience using custom dies and do you think that there's advantages to using them versus, you know, a standard die and dialing it in, you know, the way that everybody always has by adjusting it to get to the right depth and things like that? Um, no, I, I don't have any experience with the highly custom dies like that. Of course, we use like the the Type S dies that have interchangeable neck bushing so you can control neck tension like you were talking about earlier with a, a neck bushing as opposed to a mandrel. Um, but other than that, I've not really pursued the custom sizing die uh, setup, you know, to make it specifically for your gun. I mean, I personally, I, I would not expect that to have a big impact on, um, you know, on your, on your accuracy or your SDs or anything like that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that the regular dies do a great job from the, from the regular manufacturers, but there all, there is that extra step. I mean, you can buy Wilson dies that are unreamed. So it's just basically a die body, um, from Wilson, which are, they use, a for Arbor presses and that, and Arbor presses, you know, it looks like a little kind of a nutcracker where, you know, you're actually, you pull a lever down and it, it just actually like a little uh, plunger comes down and presses on the top of the die. So instead of using a ram and a, you know, as a traditional uh, reloading press, it, it rams the case up into the die, the, uh, the uh, Arbor type or uh, Wilson type dies, it actually pushes the die down onto the case. So they sell those without any uh, die uh, ground. So you can take that die, that die body to your gunsmith, and he can use uh, a reamer. And there's two different types of reamers. If you're going to do this, you have a fired case reamer, and you have a, you have a chambering reamer. So a chambering reamer is not the reamer you want to use for uh, cutting a sizing die. So just be careful. Um, you know, reamer companies sell both types of reamers. They sell reamers that are designed to set up a, a sizing die and reamers that are designed to set up a chamber. So you can't use a chambering reamer in a die that you want to size with. But there's a, a Newlon, I think Newlon, N-E-W-L-O-N is another company that sells die bodies. You know, you can chuck this up in a lathe. And if you're one of those guys, uh, you know, that can do that stuff, you can have your own custom dies. Nice, nice. And like you said, that you can always see Alan over there at Warner. I know they talk about their dies all the time. So uh, another good resource if they don't want to make their own. Yeah, I mean, they're beautiful too. I mean, Alan does great work. Cool, you know, cool. It's beautiful stuff. 
Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, after, after that, we've got to put some some powder in the case. Uh, you know, I think, you know, if we had this conversation, you know, uh, 20 years ago, Frank, you know, if, if we were all loaded to within one-tenth of a grain, uh, that's that would be like, holy shit. Like, and look, man, all this ammo is loaded to one-tenth. You're like, wow, yeah. that's really good. But now that seems awful. Right. <laughs> for, for reloaders. Right. I yeah. Mean, I mean, the scales uh, and stuff people chase today is big dollar and they're getting really micro fine in their accuracy. And and it does matter for long range. I know uh, that's something that I know Brian's really dug in on is, you know, how much charge weight really does matter. We saw it when we were doing like King of Two Mile, where literally if you're not weighing to the kernel, um, it will impact your ability to just hit the target at those ranges. Um, so, you know, there's different devices and, and ways of doing it, doing stuff out there. But, um, but you know, I think it depends on your application. But if you're if you're definitely interested in shooting to transonic and beyond, you really need to be down around you know a kernel or two of powder. Uh, Brian, do you have any? ideas or thoughts about that yeah so you know as as you may have caught on to my my tone about the uh the subtleties of hand loading is kind of um you know i i dismiss a lot of things or things that we've tested and found just don't matter you know basically my approach is just select high quality components and assemble them in a way that they work well together um and you know that's the that's the biggest part of making good ammo. You, there, a lot of this stuff that is done is, is often not necessary, but with powder, that is the one thing that I do get uh, extremely cautious about because there, I mean, you, there's many things that are arguable if it affects, you know, case capacity, sorting by case weight. Like there's a lot of things that are arguable or difficult to detect, but there is no argument that more powder makes more pressure and more velocity. I mean, that everybody that's done a load workup, it's just obvious, right? There's more energy. So if you load 10 rounds at, you know, increasing by one grain of powder, you'll see every, you know, it goes right up the line. So the correlation between velocity and powder charge is absolute. And, you know, if you get down to, you know, plus or minus a tenth of a grain, that will not be as good as if you're plus or minus a kernel. And so that's the one thing that I really invest the time and money into the equipment is getting powder charges when it's ammo that matters, you know, when we're loading for ELR or, or long range. And honestly, as, as fast as these tools are now, you know, the auto trickler setups that dump too close to your charge and then it trickles to the kernel up to what you want on a scale that reads to the 0 0.05 grains, like and it happens all so quick. So there's there's getting to be fewer reasons why not to load that carefully as, as quick and easy as it is. We you know the cost of the equipment is up there. That's a, that's a reason, but um, that is one thing I take very seriously because it absolutely matters to get consistent powder charges um, in making good muzzle you know consistent muzzle velocities. Nice, and that and that, and that goes to sh you know that's a good way to tell somebody put your focus on that powder charge, and you see a lot of that with the Prometheuses, the Auto Tricklers. The, the Satori's and things that people are doing with that. So th that just goes to show you where the success is coming from is a lot of that powder drop versus like you guys are saying earlier, 
annealing. Yeah, if you're going to use your brass a lot, but is that a primary versus your powder? Maybe not. You know, and and, and you're talking primer seeding and, and putting a focus in primer. And and so yeah, they're, they're, it's it's giving people a a more focused direction to look at the reloading setups and to look at where to start. So that's a that's that's a lot of great advice right there. Yeah, and you know, and before, and I think Frank, you know, like our, our part two, I think is where we probably want to dig in with, um, you know, powder because I'd like to talk a little about powder conditioning and. Uh, you know, kind of the characteristics of powder because I've 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 seen and heard some literally crazy shit out there about what people do to powder before they put it in a cartridge case. You know, like putting it in an oven and things like that. Oh, so wow. I want to talk. Oh, oh yeah. So I want to talk with like why not to do that stuff. Um, but maybe that and then and then maybe how to get a, uh, a, a find your charge weight a starting charge weight for your case and your ammo combination, but. That's probably for like uh, part two. I think. Definitely. I mean, we're coming up on the hour now and, and we're just scraping the surface with this. So we're absolutely going to have to do a part two. And that and that's by design in a, in a lot of ways for everybody. But yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I've never heard of some of that craziness because I don't chase uh, reloading it, it, you, like you guys have seen it. And so, um, no, for sure. But I, I just think that that powder charge in, in, in that drop is, is something that people need to look at and having that better investment in equipment that way, the better funnels, like the area 419 funnels that are all designed, you know, they're, they're machined in proper funnels. They're, they're good. And, and I mean, there's some good tools out there nowadays for guys to reload, yeah. like the auto tricklers and, and what's going on with, with both. Um, what, what, I think his name is McDonald, right? Uh, the Canadian guy who does the auto trickler. Um, yeah, out of McDonald. Yeah, yep. And then you got, uh, you know, uh, John and those guys at Area 419. They're kind of like the U.S. counterpart to some of what he does. But I mean, uh, you know, up in Canada, his shop marker, his auto trickler. And his products for this, you know, the F class and accuracy uh, on this side of it are, are really, really good. And, and it's, as you well know, with 419. Yeah, just something as simple as a funnel. Like, so you just said that. I I painsta- I bought one of those auto tricklers. They're way back ordered. So I got the scale. I'm still waiting for my auto trickler. Um, so, but, you know, so I'm weighing out to the kernel, right? I'm like, really, but I've got this really like, jive ass like old plastic funnel that doesn't really fit these two two three cases that i'm loading so i load everything through a kernel i'm pouring it i go to seat the bullets and i look down and i see all these stray kernels of powder on my loading block because the powder had leaked between the neck (laughs) and the loading block (laughs) so i'm like are you effing kidding me so i had to like dump it all again and and load it all again right so i mean just by Goddamn funnel. It's not that there's there's a method to these (laughs) right totally i mean there's a method to this madness and people look at the money being spent but it's like there's a reason why guys will invest that kind of money in something like a funnel because exactly what you said that what's your time worth you know what what happens when you look down because you're using that you know that that uh that redding plastic green one that that's one size fits all. And you look down and you go, Oh man, what just happened? And, and, and now you got to start over. So what is your time worth? And, and it's that buy once cry once with the investment. And, and you can see where some of this focus goes and, and, you know, it's like, wow, why would he spend that money on a funnel? And it's like, well, cause it kind of matters. Yeah. 
Exactly. Cool, cool. Yeah, I think we need to um work because, like I said, we're on the hour, and and I don't want to get into a new part of a topic here, but we're definitely going to be doing a part two for everybody, so we can kind of you know end it at the powder, uh, the powder charge, and and that you know we're going to go into looking at different things with powder charge, and then we're going to go into our seating, and and finding our our seating depths and different things like that. So I think we're in a good starting point or stopping point for a. A, a discussion to, to, to give people that, you know, we're here. And then the next one we're going to go into sort of that final two steps where we've determined our powder charge. And now we got to determine our seating depth and what we're going to do with that bullet and, and what kind of yeah. uh, seed we're going to use. Uh, so uh, for that, I think you guys have uh, hit on anything. I don't know if there's any, uh, it, it, like I said, we can, um, if there's anything you guys want to hit on outside of this, just this reloading part of it, if, if there's something like upcoming or you want to touch on, we could do that for the last couple seconds. Sure. We did, uh, we, we just had a press release. Um, we've got some new ammunition coming out that features our long range hybrid target and uh, bullets. So in six Creedmoor, we've got 109 grain uh, long range hybrid target ammunition. And uh, we've got uh, in 6.5 Creedmoor, we've got a 144 grain uh, long range hybrid target ammunition coming out. So those should both be fantastic performers. Nice. uh, For for factory ammo using those those new bullets, which uh, they really are great bullets in all in all metrics, you know, precision, BC, consistency, all that stuff. And I I believe uh, we're going to have some new content on the nobsbc.com website. I think Brian's got some new content coming up here really quick. So keep checking the nobsbc.com page, um, you know, for a resource for just great general information on uh ballistics awesome awesome and i'm going to put this out uh because we're going to do a part two for everybody there's actually this is going to get in depth with uh uh, reloading if you have a question you want to put it on the podbean app or you want to go to the sniper side forum uh guys have been putting questions and stuff on the forum there and and been discussing uh one of the brian you might get a kick out of this um some people are like where did brian go to uh third grade because this math is way over my head because one of the one of the back episodes brian's like oh this is just third grade math i wish i had a slide to show you and people were like (laughs) third grade there's a there's probably like a a big a big discussion of brian's uh high school or third grade (laughs) Because, but I'm like, no, he's just talking about some division and stuff, but there's some fractions in there. But people are like, that's not Mississippi math, man. That's not my third grade. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought you guys would get a kick out of, um, people were laughing at at Brian's reference to, hey man, this is just third grade math. No problem. (laughs) Uh, So that's been good. But uh, definitely put the comments out there. They are talking about this. Everybody's really loving this series. And, and I mean, it, they, they consider this a college level master class. And, and just what you guys talked about today is is worth its weight in gold alone. So we appreciate it. But thank you guys for being here. Uh, thanks for Burger in the uh, No BSBC series. Um, it's it's just been fantastic. And, and we're definitely going to be part two in this reloading. But uh, yeah, and uh, just uh, I did end up getting the uh, Garmin Delta and, and I'm digging it, man. I, I wore it this weekend and had it. Uh, I ordered it when I was in Alaska and it was waiting for me. And so big fan of the Delta. Easy to read. 
Uh, like you said, scrolling through, I already set up one of the programs, and the range card is simple. I think what was there were six lines on the range card, which is huge. And um, I just grabbed the Tempe temperature sensitive to our sensor as well, just to kind of play with that and to see because it was only like twenty four bucks on Amazon for the temperature sensor. So it, to me, it was like I'll try it and see what it, what it works like. But um, no, great job on the um, on the Delta. Uh, big fan of it. Yeah, yeah, I love using it, man. Cool, cool. Um, I'm still waiting for my uh, for my complimentary version so I can evaluate it, but I might have to go buy one. <laughs> yeah, you know, I didn't want to go there. I was like, ah, maybe I get a discount. I just like, nah, I'll order it. I I, I was like, I was gonna buy a, a a Phoenix anyway, so getting the AB was like, okay, you know, I'll get it. <laughs> But One I, more thing. instead of pulling strings, right? It's like, hey, what can you do for Frank today? And it's like, nah, I'm not gonna. I think go. I'm out. Of, I think I'm out of strings. I think I pulled them all. Exactly, right? <laughs> I, I tell people all the time, man. There's only so much water in the well. If you always yeah. go to the well, you're gonna at some point be out of water. So when when you can get some rainwater, go grab your own rainwater. But when you need the well. <laughs> But, yeah, exactly. Cool. All right, guys, we're out of here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for commenting. Thanks to Brian and Amol Burger. Everybody, uh, go over to their website, theburgernobsbc.com. And uh, like I said, the, the articles, the information, and then the Everyday Sniper podcast. Thank you guys again. We're going to be out of here. All right, man. Looking forward to the next one. Yep. We're out. <laughs>